And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with me today is Dr. George Grant. He is pastor of Parish Presbyterian Church, founder of New College Franklin, president of the Kings Meadow Study Center, and founder of Franklin Classical School. He's authored dozens of books in history, biography, politics, literature, social criticism, and written hundreds of essays. Dr. Grant, it's great to have you with us today. Well, Dan, it is great to be with you as well, as, uh, as always. And um, you've authored a number of, of books. Uh, today we're going to talk about some of these. And in particular, I'd like to focus on um, at least three of them, and if we have time, some others. Um, one is, uh, let, let's jump directly into the fire, as it were, and ask, ask, you, <laughs> ask you about a, a biography that you wrote on Margaret Sanger. Uh, what's the title of the book? Who was Sanger? And can you summarize the work for us? And, and why is that a unique book? Yeah, the uh, the book was written after I had written a much larger book on the organization that uh, Margaret Sanger founded called Planned Parenthood. Uh, the, the book was uh, entitled Grand Illusions, and it was an attempt to... Um, to examine the the roots of the organization, its purposes and intents uh, from a Christian and pro-life perspective. And one of the things that that readers over and over and over again uh, told me was how shocked they were at the details of Margaret Sanger's life. She was uh, quite the revolutionary and incredibly influential in shaping uh, mid-century uh, American politics and culture uh, in the 20th century, and really laid most of the foundations for the the, uh, the, the work that we now see as, as the uh, progressive remaking of America. And uh, so people started to really ask if I would do further work and so I, I wrote a short biography of, uh, of Sanger. It was uh, well-received, and then uh, because of some controversies regarding Planned Parenthood and their lauding uh, Margaret Sanger as sort of a modern uh, patron saint of, uh, of secular progressivism, uh, a second edition was done that was slightly expanded, uh, but that was more than 10 years ago, and uh, now more than ever before, I see Margaret Sanger's influence in Washington, D.C., in the creation of the employer uh, health care mandates, in the agenda of the Obama administration, and, uh, and in particular, the, the strong support that uh, the president, the first lady, and the administration in Washington have given to this uh, organization, Planned Parenthood, I felt like it was really important once again to um, to detail the work. So we've we've reworked the book and uh, expanded it yet again, and it's uh, due to be released soon. Um, and my hope and prayer is that it'll just open people's eyes and help them realize what an incredible slippery slope we're on and what uh, dangerous, dangerous precedents are being set. Mm. 
Before the uh, discussion today, I, I did take a look at Planned Parenthood's website, and they do have some links where they anticipate objections to what they're doing, and they also do cover uh, quite a bit of information about um, basically their founder, Margaret Sanger, and it, it appears they have nothing bad to say about her. Um, right. And, yeah. and uh, I, I wonder if she's almost held up as a sort of idol to some folks, maybe not an idol, but perhaps an icon, someone to be followed, emulated, adored. Uh, what What have you found? Yeah, I, and, and, you know, a number of biopics have been done on PBS and other uh, media outlets lauding this woman as sort of a modern heroine of freedom and liberty. Um, she, every year, Planned Parenthood gives uh, the highest award that they give at a, at a gala supper called the, the Margaret Sanger Award. Uh, she she has been recast and remade as this great American hero, when in fact she was anything but. She was an early communist revolutionary uh, during the heady days of the Roaring Twenties. She uh, became a, um, a radical labor activist, uh, eventually realizing after she uh, fled the country on... Um, profanity charges, uh, she realized that uh, the best way to remake America was uh, not through radical leftist politics, although she never abandoned her views. Uh, she realized that the revolution she was hoping for could best be achieved by remaking the American family, and in particular, American sexuality. So she became the strong advocate for a kind of brazen immorality, uh, the likes of which we could have never imagined, at least not until recent days. And um, at the same time, she uh, aligned herself with a number of pseudoscientific views, including uh, something called eugenics, uh, which is, uh, plain and simple, the basis for for Nazi anti-Semitism. Eugenics held that there was a scientific basis for identifying um, what uh, what they considered human weeds, uh, uh, whole sectors of human societies that needed to be eliminated because they were a drain and dangerous to all of the rest of us. Hmm. And uh, those included uh, Africans and African Americans, uh, Jews, uh, Eastern Europeans, Slavs, etc., and uh, Margaret Singer embraced this ideology, became its chief advocate, and used her campaign for birth control and abortion as a way to limit these undesirable um, sectors of human society. Mm. Uh, she was a racist, and she used science uh, and government coercion as a way to achieve her long-term goal, which was a kind of socialist revolution in which the government uh, took control of everything from health care to education to uh, child-rearing to to literally to the point of actually advocating uh, requiring licenses uh, for people to be able to have children. Oh, my. Um, 
So that's the legacy of, of Margaret Sanger. It's a, it's a rather untold story. Um, what I've tried to do in the book is really detail all of this uh, pretty carefully with uh, documentary evidence from primary and secondary sources. It's, um, you know, it's uh, unfortunately we're starting to see the fruit of her revolution um, be harvested in our own day. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sanger-like followers in Washington, in virtually all of uh, the bureaucracy and throughout the Obama administration, have created a, a frightening specter indeed. The erosion of our freedoms to a degree that I don't think any of us could have ever imagined. Mm, it's happening quickly now. Well, this sounds like a fascinating book, and uh, you're updating it, and it'll be out soon in the newish issue, so uh, people need to keep an eye out for that. Who Who is the target audience there? Well, you know, I uh, I always have some specific people in mind whenever I write a book, and in this case, I'm really aiming at pastors and uh, and cultural leaders. Uh, I don't want this just to be the sort of book that pro-life activists pick up. I want it to be the sort of thing that really opens the eyes of those influencers who can begin the process of steering us away from these rocky shoals. Mm, Yes. Well, very good. Um, Next up is a book you wrote on Christopher Columbus. And uh, when I hear the name Christopher Columbus, um, my mind goes back, and I think of this little ditty in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And unfortunately, since I was not a strong student in school, particularly with history in those early days, um, I knew little more than that uh, about him. Can you tell us about this book? And in particular, um, how did you go about getting information on this man who lived so many years ago, and and what's unique about the book? Well, Christopher Columbus was a man who elicited a great deal of fascination in in America in the first uh, 200 years of our uh, nation's uh, history, and uh, was, you know, widely considered uh, a, a great hero, uh, but in 1992, uh, as the um, the 500th anniversary of uh, of Columbus was uh, celebrated in some quarters, he was uh, decried as a uh, um, you know a, a brutal white Western European exploiter of you know the. Uh, the American Native Americans and their civilization, probably a slave trader and all of the rest. And uh, the uh, the rewriting of the story was so stark that I began to do some serious research. And uh, what I found, of course, was not just the remarkable story of this genius of navigation and uh, this man who really... Uh, reopened navigation, cross-Atlantic navigation, as it had never been before since the time of the Norse explorers in the 8th century. I, uh, I also discovered the, 
the remarkable character of a man who was a devout Christian, a strong advocate for the Native Americans on his second, third, and fourth voyages, um, ardently opposed to the conquistadors, uh, slavery, all of the rest of it. Um, but that wasn't all that I discovered. Uh, the, the other thing that I discovered, which was really astonishing, was that um, that Columbus, as very much a man of his day, was deeply concerned about the rapid advances of radical Islam on the um, on the eastern edge of Europe. Europe had been in a protracted and oftentimes futile battle against radical Islam, and had seen assaults of Islamic armies um, in uh, in Columbus's own lifetime all the way up to the gates of the city of Vienna. Uh, it was during Columbus's lifetime that Byzantium fell and uh, Constantinople was swept into the, uh, the empire of the Ottoman Turks. Uh, so it was very much a subject of, of keen interest to everyone alive during Columbus's day. Uh, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, uh, the two great uh, monarchs that uh, eventually sponsored Columbus's journey, uh, had been um, together battling the uh, the Islamic forces that held much of what today we call Spain, and uh, the Reconquista, uh, the recovery of the Spanish, the Iberian Peninsula was um, one of the biggest uh, cultural events of, of Europe uh, in that day. And all of this was really a part and parcel of Columbus's thinking. His exploration, uh, he uh, believed, was going to be the means by which he could rear flank the Muslim horde and thus bring about a possible recovery of the Holy Land. In other words, Columbus wasn't going exploring for gold and silver, although he hoped that there would be riches that could fund the expedition uh, to be found on the journeys. He was literally attempting to launch a new crusade and, uh, and thus push back the threat of the Islamic Horde back into its Arabian homeland. Uh, his vision was the recovery of old eastern Christendom. So he was sailing to the west in order to reach the east so that Christianity would not be swallowed up by Islam. Well, that's fascinating. So the book, the book is an attempt to tell that story. Now, um, were you able to find any primary sources? Yes. Yes, in fact, uh, Columbus himself wrote two very remarkable documents. First was a journal, um, the, uh, in a sense, the captain's log of all four of his voyages. And there's a tremendous amount of uh, material in those uh, journals, and uh, that was invaluable. But But even more helpful was... 
another book that Columbus wrote in his final days. In fact, it was his consuming passion uh, during the last two years of his life. Um, but he had been working on it and developing it uh, for most of the last 40 years of his life. He titled it The Book of Prophecies. And essentially what it was, was a, a, a Bible study uh, combined with a tremendous amount of, of classical literature, which pointed to the um, great accomplishments of Christianity in history, uh, including uh, eventual triumph over Islam. Mm. Very interesting. So what drove his vision was this uh, sort of triumphalistic vision of the gospel uh, that he had been exploring in, uh, in this Bible study that he called the Book of Prophecies which is essentially a, a study of all of the, the promises of the Old Testament and the New Testament and ways that they pointed to the eventual uh, obedience of, uh, of the Word of God on earth just as it is in heaven. Oh, that's neat. I, I love that theme. Um, could easily spend more time here, but I, I know that our time is running fast here. I uh, really wanted to cover one more book, if I may, um, and that is, um, Dr. Grant, you have a book that pertains to America's independence. Um, yes. Um, it's called An Experiment in Liberty, America's Path to Independence. Um, what do you cover in that book? Well, as the title implies, it's a, it's a very brief history of the American War for Independence. It covers, um, it provides a little bit of backdrop to the establishing of all of the American colonies. Uh, and there were 21, and not just 13 uh, colonies. So the, there's a, sort of a, a survey of, of that. Uh, and then the prosecution of the war itself. But the but the focus is not on the battles and the military strategy. The focus is really what's going on in the culture uh, and what's happening with these lower magistrates, uh, men like Samuel Adams and Henry Lawrence and Pete Randolph, uh, who, who form this uh, sort of interim government uh, to help guide these uh, wrangling uh, oftentimes fractious, independent colonies toward a unified uh, confederation and eventually a single nation. Mm-hmm. So the um, the span of time really is focused largely on the 15 years or so between the first real stirrings for independence, and it concludes with the... Uh, the Constitutional Convention. Okay. Uh, and the focus of it is really not on the Constitutional Convention, uh, which really comes after, or the whole reasons for exploration and planting the colonies, but just the, the remarkable raising up of these incredible statesmen um, with few resources and no infrastructure and uh, really no initial predilection to... Uh, 
to the work of reforming a nation, and how, uh, in God's providence, all of that was brought together for the establishment of of the American nation. Mm. The reason that I, I think that story needs to be told in a fresh way is uh, is that that experiment in liberty is now largely being abandoned mm. in modern America. And the principles that those men stood for and what they fought for and uh, what they fought against is uh, is really out of the sight lines of most modern Americans. Um, if, um, if, if we were to go through systematically each of the 27 uh, different complaints against Parliament and Crown listed in the Declaration of Independence, I think most people would be shocked that those are more relevant today than ever before. Only now, it's our own federal government uh, that is doing, in large uh, measure, uh, what Parliament and King were only doing in small measure then. Mm, You kind of anticipated, I think, a question I had, and that was, are there issues today that, that if they existed back then in the 1770s, uh, would they be considered such large, immensely large issues that they would have helped to have made the decision easier to have a revolution? Kind of a, a no-brainer type issue. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, w- one of the things that the, the Founding Fathers were resolute on was that they were not to be revolutionaries. Mm. Uh, they, they saw themselves as upholders of long-standing standards. Uh, in fact, they believed that it was the British who were the revolutionaries. Ah, yes. Okay. Uh, and so what they were attempting to do was to restore respect for law and, um, and proper jurisdictions and uh, authority that is held accountable, uh, that cannot uh, operate just by sheer force or by the exercise of expediency. Uh, that's really what the Bill of Rights is all about. So to answer your question, I think that, uh, that the Founding Fathers have much to teach us about our own day, and I think that uh, seeing their courage in the face of small offenses should r- really stir us or shame us in the face of the large offenses mm. that we see from our federal government and even our local um, our local magistrates these days, mm-hmm. um, you know, police uh, acting as if they're standing armies with their SWAT teams to serve uh, things like warrants, breaking into homes in the middle of the night. Um, these kinds of things are now regular occurrences in modern America, and there's hardly a peep. Hardly a word. That is uh, certainly so Certainly the true. pulpits of, of America are silent on the subject. That is so true. Some time ago we interviewed the Rutherford Institute, and uh, he talked about that very thing of SWAT teams coming into a home and actually f- coming into the wrong home and, peop- and, right. and blood right. sh- bloodshed taking place. Uh, these are very serious matters. Um, we're almost out of time today for our discussion, Dr. Grant. Um, I, I, I think I'd like to know, uh, there's many more books we could talk about that you've written, but um, as a pastor, I'm wondering 
maybe you could summarize, share your heart as we go forward here in America as as Christians. Any advice for us uh, of, of what what to do, how to handle things? Well, you know, I, I think, Dan, one of the things that uh, has been most helpful for me as I've studied history is I have been able to see that the reason why the American patriots were able to take the stands that they did was because they had pastors who were faithfully opening the Word of God and showing the relevance of the Word of God to every single area of life, and, and then showing the path for real and substantive change from the Word of God. I think that uh, if the modern church were to awaken, if we were, uh, as pastors, to do our job, we would be able to equip and enable our sons and daughters, our magistrates and our friends, uh, to, to do the, the hard work of recovering our liberties. But as long as we're silent, as long as we sit on our hands, as long as we um, are complicit with uh, radical changes to our nation, um, as long as we act with obeisance uh, to these awful decrees that are coming down the pike at every turn, then we become like the German church during the days of the rise of Nazism. Mm. Uh, we we uh, fall into the condemnation of those who simply have not done our job. Mm. And so my encouragement is it's time for the church to arise. It's time for us to take the Word of God seriously, uh, apply it to every detail of life with with balance and integrity, and um, speak the truth in love in such a way that it really makes a difference. Mm. Praise the Lord for that advice. Today on the phone line with me is Dr. George Grant, and he is the pastor of Parish Presbyterian Church, and he's written many books. Dr. Grant, it's been a real honor to have you on the program with us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for the fine work that you're doing. I am so grateful uh, in a day of of, uh, media schlock (laughs) to have something like Redeemer uh, proclaiming the truth. Praise the Lord. To our listener, thank you for joining us today, and a quick reminder to join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.